Hey, we're going to be in Acts 9, so if you have a Bible or a device you're using, that's where we're going to be. We're going to march through um, a fascinating passage today, getting to teach on something I don't normally get to teach on, which I'm excited about, um, Acts 9. And just to set it up a little bit, to set the passage up, is to say something we all know, and that's that one of the more brutal discoveries that the pandemic showed us for that 18 to 20-ish months that it was incredibly difficult was how lonely we are as a people. I think we kind of already knew that. Loneliness itself was already a pandemic before the pandemic, but whenever physical social connection was removed, I think we realized um, how, how bad it really was. And I found this, this study that was done last year, or maybe just the results were released last year from Harvard. They did a national survey of quite a few people that found that Four out of 10 Americans, 40%, felt lonely either almost all of the time or all of the time. That's amazing to me. And you know what was even more amazing is in the same study, they found out that 61% of young adults and over half of young moms said that they struggled with serious loneliness. Just think about the demographic for a moment. 60%, over 60% of all young adults and over half of young moms. What I just described is the most connected demographic in human history when it comes to social media, right? It's the most friended, liked, followed, connected demographic, and it was, in fact, the loneliness. And and in the study, the guy that really pushed and kind of drove the study for Harvard, he said this, I was surprised at the degree of loneliness among young people. If you look at the other studies on the elderly, their rates of loneliness were high, but they don't seem to be as high as they are for young people. It's interesting that it surprised him. It didn't surprise me much because I hear it all the time. I hear how lonely people are all the time, how they don't have friends, how they would like a friend. They want friends. Many of you are lonely. You might even be surrounded by people and you're lonely. I've always felt relationally wealthy. I've always been thankful to the Lord for this. Um, But apparently, I'm wealthier than I thought I was. I have just over 1,000 friends across all my social media apps. Some of you are not impressed by that. But listen, I'm combining them all. That's Facebook, which I haven't even been on in like over two years. That's Instagram, Strava, everything is all collapsed. And I have over 1,000 friends but I don't really have a thousand friends. By the way, the average American Facebook account has 338 friends, all right? You judge yourself whether you're above or below on the bell curve on that. Instagram, it's 150. But we don't really mean friends, we mean connections. And even when I say connections, I don't mean good ones, I mean loose connections, which is why when someone tries to friend you and you go on and you look and you have this opportunity to accept their request or decline it, how many times have you looked at the person and thought, (laughs) Who is this? Like, who is that? It's like the nephew of someone I haven't seen since high school, or it's my mechanic's brother or something. I don't even know who that, sure, I'll hit accept. Now we're friends, right? That happens all the time. That's probably where most of the 338 connections are. See, loneliness does not mean just being alone in a room. It means being alone in your soul. And listen, you can have a lot of people around you and a lot of people that like you and still be very lonely. In one of the documentaries she put out, Lady Gaga said this, I'm alone every night, and all these people will leave. They will leave, and then I'll be alone. And I go from everyone touching me all day and talking at me all day to total silence. 
Now listen, I realize that it's no longer really provocative to talk about how social media friends aren't really friends. That was played out 15 years ago. I think we all get it, right? You've heard it a million times. I also don't have to tell you how hard good friends are to find. Really good friends, how hard it is. Even lifelong friends, how hard it is to find a really good friend. And there's a legion, for region, a legion of reasons for this. I think one of the more fascinating ones, it's probably um, more of a current reason that friendship is hard to find. I mean, there's always the obligatory ones. You might be working too hard. Your friends might have gotten married before you got married, started having babies before you started having babies. And so you kind of spin out of the orbit of who used to be a good friend. But what's interesting now and what studies are starting to show us is that because we're such a transient society, we have to hit reset on our friend circles just because we move around so much. The average American will move 12 times in their lifetime. 12 times. That's a lot of, that's just a lot of moments where you have to start all over with your best friends, looking for new friend circles. The average 18-year-old in the U.S. has already moved twice. The average 30-year-old in the U.S. has already moved up to seven times. That's a lot of movement. That's why many of your friendships, unless you grew up here, a lot of your friendships are no longer right down the road. They live somewhere else, USA. And you say to yourself, we usually pick up where we left off. We talk on the phone often. We DM each other often. And that's probably true. But what happens is, is the out of sight, out of mind nature of that relationship slowly makes you irrelevant to each other. And you kind of know that. You fight against it. You try to get around them. But it just doesn't hold together. And it's overwhelming the amount of work that it looks like you're about to have to put in to build yet another group of friends. It's very overwhelming. I love this proverb, Proverbs 18, 24. It says, one who has unreliable friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is a truism in two different directions, and we don't have time to really anchor down on how unreliable friends can ruin us. That deserves its own sermon. The friend who sticks closer than a brother is of particular interest to me today because that's what we want that's ultimately what we all really want, is somebody who is such a good friend or people who are really good friends that they're actually closer to us than maybe even family, right? So the big questions that we're gonna try to answer today is what is the church supposed to do about this? And when I say church, I mean you. I don't mean the leadership team or the faces on the website. I mean you. What is the church supposed to do about friendships, okay? Maybe another question is, is it the local church's goal to be one of creating friendships? Is that our goal? Maybe another one is if you don't have any friends or good friends or great friends, is there something wrong with you? Something wrong with you? You know, we've worked really hard as a church to build a community that is authentic. That is our second value. We have three values. Our second one is that we are a communally authentic people, which means you might know 338 people. And be authentic with 338 people. Genuine is what I mean. Honest. But you still might feel lonely. It, that still is possible. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be your deep friend. You can be honest and authentic and still feel loneliness. So our second value of being communally authentic, that, that typically speaks to your posture with other people. But it doesn't promise that they'll reciprocate in any way. right? That, that's not a value we can put out there. <laughs> So you can be in community, 
even in a good community, and still struggle with what we're talking about today. And I think that might be the case for a lot of people. But I'd love to maybe reshape a little bit the idea of friendship in general. From being something that we have to something that we give. And I think this might be a hard sell for some people. Just maybe redefining what friendship is according to how Christ saw friendship. Because being a friend is simply more than being liked, being agreed with, having an affinity with somebody over something. Being a friend means investing in others in the shape of Christ in such a way that it is for their benefit, even if it's at your loss. Sometimes that's reciprocated. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. Enjoying a great friend, that's a grace of God to us. That's a kindness of the Lord that A, we don't deserve, and B, he just did because he's good to us, because he's kind and he's thoughtful and he loves us. Right? It's a great, enjoying a great friend, a good friend, a lifelong friend, that's a grace to us. It is not a promise. It is not a promise. You know, a phrase I've used often is we cannot promise you deep friendship here, but we can promise to build a church where deep friendships can happen. I think that's the safest way we can approach it as a church. And I think this is going to be valuable for us. This passage in Acts is going to be valuable for us because the American church is typically more focused on gaining friends than being friends, and those aren't the same thing. Not even close. I mean, you noticed it when you walked in here. We're a local church, not a big one right? And, and a local church is just kind of a soup of relationships. Some, some people, you have no idea what their name is, even though you've seen them like two or three or 30 times. I'm always shocked when someone's been here for like nine months and I meet somebody who's been here for a few years. I'm like, hey, do you know this person? They're like, no, no, I've seen them once or twice. I'm like, bro, you don't know them? Let's go meet them, man. They're great and you're great. It'll be this awesome, great moment where two of my favorite people meet each other, you know? So I know how it is. You walk in, I assume you know everybody's name. You don't know everybody's name, so you've got those relationships. You're kind of foggy on the wife's name. You think you know the husband's name. You don't know any of their kids' names, right? Maybe you get to know them a little bit and you, you know all of their first names. Some of you, you have disciples in here, mentors in here. Some of you have deep friendships, some lifelong friendships. It's a, it's a big pot of different types of relationships. But in all of the variety, we are one singular community. There is a differentiation. We're a community. This is how Paul says it to the church in Corinth. And let me just remind you, he's speaking to a church that is fragmented in this advanced way that looks just like a high school, right? So they're very cliquish, very cafeteria-ish going on in 1 Corinthians. And he says this, for just as the body is one and has many members. So he's talking about the human body, like an earlobe and a foot and an arm and stuff like that. So just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So translation, we might not be great friends, you and me, you and the person next to you, but we are community by the blood of Jesus. We might not share the same memories and inside jokes and affinities and interests, but we do share the same family name, the same story of origin and the fact that Jesus rescued us broke himself on a cross and bled to cover our sins to glue us together as a powerful family. We do share that. I'm going to argue that's just as powerful as great friends and probably more. Probably more powerful. 
I mean, for instance, just consider who has shaped you the most in your life. Just a quick scan of your hard drive to see who has put the most fingerprints on developing you as who you are, like a coach, an employer, a mentor, a grandfather, a dad, somebody like that. They made you who you are today. They were a good friend to you, in other words, even if you didn't reciprocate and friend them to the same degree. See, the Great Commission handed to the church to make disciples of all nations, who, who will make disciples of all nations. This beautiful commission handed to us is really built on the back of a friendly church. A friendly church that's not demanding and requiring other people friend them back and reciprocate to the same degree. Friendship is a grace to us. Shaping disciples is a mandate. Friendship is a grace to us, but deep friendship is not always a promise. Okay, but there is good news for us. There's great news for the lonely in this passage today. So let's look at Acts 9. I've spent enough time setting it up. Let's look at Acts 9. This is going to be the word of the Lord. And I promise you're going to see Jesus in maybe a different way than you've seen him before you walked in, which is always our goal. And in Acts 9, we're going to start in verse 9. Um, Yeah, that's a good place to start. Verse 9. And for three days, this is Saul, who's been blinded by the glory of Jesus as he is changed. His heart has changed. He is a Christian. And it says, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, that street is still there. And I kid you not, it is still called Straight Street. You can look it up on Google. It's crazy. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, let's pause for a moment and look at this friend because that's what he is. Ananias was a friend in a very crucial and key moment and this guy had nothing in common with Paul. They didn't have have the same high school mascot or grow up in the same cul-de-sac. They weren't bros. In fact, Days before this moment right now, you, you had to have known if Saul was going to show up in a city, it wasn't good news. He was probably hiding under his bed with a bat, you know, waiting to get pulled out and executed, which is why he says to the Lord, but Lord, this guy's not good news. Rumor has it is he's a killer. 
I don't know how wise it is for me to go marching down to his house or wherever he's at right now. So the Lord assures Ananias that his sovereignty is in control, that he will in fact show Saul through a vision, not as a punishment, what's going to happen to him, but as a, as a fact of reality. This is the life that will be lived. And Ananias does something friendly. He goes. Not only that, the very first words Paul hears as a Christian is brother. Brother. That's a word of belonging. You belong. Discipleship has begun. Ananias begins to shape Saul without demanding anything back from Saul. There's a good principle in this for you and me. Being a good friend sometimes means going out of our way to great personal cost to others who don't look like a good bet. They look ferocious. They're probably not going to reciprocate any friendship. There's nothing in this for Ananias at all. It's not convenient. It's not lucrative. It's not safe. He goes, however, and he welcomes Saul into the family of God, lays his hands on him, baptizes him. This must have meant the world to Saul to hear the, the voice of comfort, to feel somebody's hands on his shoulders, to welcome him. I'm sure he was full of questions. I mean, can you imagine the amount of questions he had? Gets his eyes back and can see another guy has been baptized. So many things that said, okay now, now, okay, now that that's done, what's next? How do I do this? How do I do that? What am I supposed to think about what I've done? Imagine the shame he probably had to just kind of dump out on the table that Ananias would have had to, as a good friend, maybe walk him through. It's amazing. And this is what's most amazing. After this, Ananias disappears. We don't hear from him again. He's not Paul's traveling buddy. They're not super tight. He's not mentioned again in a book where a lot of people are mentioned a lot. Ananias played a key role and then receded back into anonymity, and you won't see him again in the Bible. By the way, this is, it. This, this is what I find to be true about a lot of friendships and discipleship seasons. It's not that there's sin or dysfunction that's at work. Sometimes they run their course. Sometimes God is kind and he puts people in our life for a small amount of time, powerful amount of time, and then they recede into anonymity, right? It's nothing broken. It's just the providence of God. I have a bunch of men and women in my life who have acted like this for me, too many really to count. They were friendly. They invested in me when I wasn't worth it, when I didn't show any promise. I couldn't reciprocate the friendship back to them. They were just great commission people. They weren't bent out of shape because I couldn't return friendship. Praise God for that. So that's one friend. Let's meet another one. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 20. Okay. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and who at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, Barnabas is a familiar face, right? We've talked about him on two occasions in some previous passages as a great encourager that the church loved. He's a great financial giver to the church, we found out. And he's also a good friend in a crucial moment because Paul is trying to sync up with the Jerusalem disciples and they're not having it because they haven't forgotten, right? They're not just so quick to to buy this act. They did not forget what he did. So Barnabas does something only a good friend would do and he vouches for him. He literally joined his reputation to Saul's reputation. He co-signed for him, you could say. You could, you could even say that, that, that Saul was hidden inside of the robust reputation of Barnabas, and it worked. It worked. Now, interestingly, they would actually be pretty tight after this. This is a friendship that would continue. We will hear more about Barnabas. They would even take turns maybe discipling and mentoring and ministering to each other, and you'll know this because as we start to see their travels, Barnabas' name will be mentioned first. It doesn't sound like anything unique to us. We put stuff down in different orders just indiscriminately. But back then in ancient language, if your name was first in a long list of names, that meant that you were kind of the pointy end of the stick. You were the the leader, I guess. You had the, the, the position of primacy, right? Well, that's how it started. And you could tell that Saul's still kind of wet behind the ears. He's still learning some things. So he's running co pilot. But then eventually, at some point, it swaps. And then Paul's name is mentioned first. So you had this unique relationship where they were mutually growing as friends, mutually ministering to each other, teaching each other. And this is my favorite part of their friendship. They fought. They fought. And then they reconciled. Now we're going to get to that point eventually, but just the punchline is as they slammed into each other to a pretty big degree, so big that they had to separate for a little bit. I cannot wait to get to that passage. There is a ton for us to learn there. But the big idea I want to hit here is being a friend means much more than just being liked. It means living in the shape of Jesus, a friend to sinners. Sinners who wouldn't reciprocate. Sinners who wouldn't be worth it, wouldn't give anything back. He's the greatest friend in the world. And Jesus is going to show us two things in his life, friendship and loneliness. Loneliness. You see, we focus so little on being a good friend and so heavily on collecting low-cost friends who can maybe promise to erase our loneliness. We want people to take the loneliness away. And yet what we're really looking for is a kind of friendship only Jesus can ultimately deliver. In some ways, in some ways, we put a God-sized expectation on humans. And when we make a friend, what we're secretly saying inside, even though we'd never say it out of our mouth, is please make me not lonely. Please make me not lonely. But people can't erase our loneliness. That's a condition of the soul, not proximity. I mean, one person can't erase it. 338 people can't erase it. 
Loneliness is real, and yet the remedy cannot be only in man alone. It's a human condition, but it's remedied by Christ. Okay? This is what I think is the hard sell for a lot of people. I mean, sure, lots of really good friends. It takes the edge off, knocks the hard edges off of loneliness. But deep friendship here on earth is a grace. It's not a savior. It's not a savior for us. It's Jesus who is the friend who is closer than a brother. And it's the work that he has done for us that erases and solves our problem of loneliness. I mean, just watch him. Watch him walk. Watch him talk and work with people. You cannot find a loose moment in the Gospels where Jesus is not being a friend to those who will never return the favor. A leper, a soldier, a prostitute, a tax collector, a cripple, a Pharisee, they all needed friends. And he was the greatest. He was the greatest friend. He wasn't thinking about himself. He he wasn't assessing potential relationships, thinking in his head, hey, listen, if if you can meet my needs, I'll meet yours. If you can't meet my needs, I'm moving on. And Jesus is the one who understands loneliness more than anyone. Because the only reciprocation he found as he was a good friend was murder and slander. I mean, friend, listen, have you lost a friend? Have you lost a really good friend? You're, you're not alone. You're understood far more than you realize. Far more than you realize. You have one who has gone before you. Jesus was a friend to many. And he was tortured and shamed and crucified. Jesus has felt the depth of loneliness. And when I say the depth, I don't mean he felt it really bad. I mean he plunged the depths of loneliness and found where it stops. Found the very bottom found the very edges of loneliness. And so when you find yourself lonely today, you need to know he is there with you, holding you together. Oh, he gets it. He's a sympathetic priest. He's not bewildered by your pain, wondering why you hurt so much. He's felt it. He's felt it. He is with you. You want to know why? Because he's a good friend. Oh, he's such a good friend. He's a better Ananias because he comes close to us when we are the dangerous ones not worthy of investment. He moves towards us as villains when we're blinder than Saul. He talks to a villain and calls him family. He's far better than Ananias. He's better than Barnabas who vouches for us before the Father. He joins his name to ours and he hides our reputation inside of his own. We're buried in his reputation. He is a good friend to us. And as a good friend, Jesus actually tells us how we are to walk in the light of that. He says in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he gets to say that. The greatest friend in eternity lays his life down for those who are not worthy of investment, not friendly, not worth vouching for. And because he has done this, we are totally free. We're totally free to give friendship and not require friendship. Listen, I no longer need to require others love me back. I'm free from having to require some reciprocal arrangement with people Gone are the days where in my heart of hearts I'll say, I'll be your friend if you promise to be my friend. I'll go this far if you go that far. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to. Not because I'm an improved version of you. It's because I'm free from it. And you are too. 
Because the truth is, and we said this from the pulpit in 10 different sermons in 10 different directions, you cannot love someone when you demand something from that person at the same time. You'll break the relationship. You can't do it. If you're requiring somebody give you something like adoration or affection or security or approval, if you need them for something, you can never love them fully. Not 100%. You'll pull your punches. You'll always leave things out of what you should be saying. You'll never do the things that you should do. You can't be a good friend, not if self-preservation is in view. You can't do it. Good friends lay their lives down. They do it by saying what needs to be said, even if it means risking the relationship. This is how Jesus loved, with no thought to his own self-preservation. And because I'm befriended by Jesus, in some ways I'll never be lonely again. I'm like you. I'll feel lonely from time to time here on earth right? I'll see something happening online that I didn't get invited to, right? Or I'll hear stories about something that I would have loved to have been in and I wasn't. Or I'll just feel lonely. I won't have people around me. Or I will have people around me and just my soul feels, I'm just like you. I can feel lonely here in this place, this, this earth, but at the same time, I can be surprised by the full wealth of a relationship that I have with Jesus, that he is the better friend, that when I am all alone, he is right there. When my soul feels empty of friendship, he is right there. And listen, if this is no consolation to you, it's because you see friendship with Jesus like being friends with your dead uncle or some spirit you imagine in your head or something like that. Like, well, I mean, I guess it's good that he's my friend, but I don't even know what that means because I'm still alone in the room. Friend, he's alive. He's here with us today. He's alive. He's real. Make no mistake. He's not just a spirit. He's the living God. He's king of the cosmos, and he is your friend. He's very near. And when you feel rejected and alone and unknown, Jesus is holding you together every bit as much as he is holding the atoms of this creation together, allowing this world to do what it does. Why? Because he's a good friend. He's such a good friend to us. But when Jesus is the only friend you really have, and you still feel lonely in this world, there's maybe a few pointers that we can walk by before we go into our, musical, our, our time of musical worship. One, and these are things that we've already talked about, so this would be by reminding you. You're not totally alone, even in being alone. Apparently, you're the majority, 61%. Right? There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> This is, this is just reality. Just because you're friended doesn't mean you have friends. Definitely don't have 338 friends. There's nothing wrong with you. Loneliness is just one of the broken bottles that sits on the ground of creation. This is a broken place we live. In fact, your loneliness is both a sign of the fall and within the scope of God's reach with his long sovereign arm. That means God is working in your loneliness. Okay? Sure it hurts. We're not home yet. Loneliness hurts. And yes, God can change it in a moment. But he might be working out some things for you in your loneliness. That's important for you to know. Be careful you don't look at loneliness as something that God hates at all costs. He gets a lot of work done in lonely seasons. It can be a tool sometime to craft something deeper in you. That's one. Two is loneliness is not ultimately solved by people alone. People come and go. 
Seasons change. People vanish. We know this. Jesus, however, is a friend closer than a brother who stays through every season. In fact, as we've said, trying to make others answer your deepest longings and loneliness is just going to break those relationships. It's just going to break them. A church can only provide space for friendship to happen, but that's not the core mission statement of a church. It's not the core mission statement. If you look at a church like this or any church moving forward, because if you're the average, you probably got another six or seven moves left in you, right? So whatever church you bump into, if you assess a local church's value on its best friend profile, you're misunderstanding the church. It's not what it's there to do. It can create puddles and pockets and rhythms for you to build relationships, but it doesn't shrink wrap and deliver them. It's not its goal. The third is you've got to take risks if you want to build and enrich a relationship or else it will become irrelevant and it will die on the vine. It won't work. Romans 12, Paul says it really well. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. You see, good relationships are built. They are not born. Sure, you've bumped into somebody. I've bumped into people where I'm like, wow, we have a lot in common. We could be good friends or we're friendly from the get-go. That's, that's the start of something, but that's not a solid friendship that you can build on. No, you've got you to put time into that. That's built on the back of hard conversations. Hard conversations and heavy investment with that person is the fastest way to build the kind of relationships that we are really looking to carry through life with us. If you're avoiding a hard conversation and you are pulling a punch, it's because you are afraid they're going to take something from you that you have to have. Or they're not going to give you something that you really feel like you need. There's a, there's a moment where you feel like you might need to say something, but it could jeopardize too much. It's too risky. So you don't. Friend, that, that's the fastest way to kill a relationship. That's the fastest way to kill a friendship. My biggest suspicion is not that people can't find friends. My biggest suspicion is that risks aren't being taken, so friendships aren't maturing. That's my biggest one. So yes, ask God to bring you friends. It's a good thing to pray for. It's a fantastic thing to have. It's a joy and a grace to us to have good friends. Look for them. Hunt them down. And then when you find them, build. Build. And build well. And you need to be ready to deposit a tremendous amount of energy. If your friendships around you were easy, came easy, and are effortless, they're simply not deep. You cannot have both. You can't. The good ones, the good relationships, the friendships that last a long time and bear a lot of fruit, they have heavy price tags on them. And if you're risk averse, this will be hard. But I mean, just look at, look, look at your friendships, the deep ones, the not so deep ones, the ones you'd like to be deeper, and then ask yourself, what needs to be said here? Maybe it's something you need to say to them regarding their life. Maybe it's something you need to say about yourself to share your own life. Something might need to be said, though. Pray about it. Think about it. Side-think it. Pray about it again. But delivering those conversations, which either sound like, hey, there's something I feel like I need to say to you, or, hey, there's something about me I feel like you need to know. That's where these relationships are built. Listen, there's a lot for us to repent when we look at good friends like Barnabas and Ananias. I read the stories of these men and how they worked with Saul, how they were a good friend, and not just a good friend, but a friend in the shape of Jesus. It's clear. You can see Jesus as big as day. 
just by watching these men operate around Saul. And I see that I need to repent for not taking chances and being a good friend. I think some of you do too, need to join with me in that. I think the church has enough shallow relationships, to be honest, right? I also find that I need to repent for placing expectations on others that are really only fit for the shoulders of Jesus. Heavy expectations. I think some of you have to do the same thing with me. It's why we require more than we give. It's why we pull our punches. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I don't act as a friend as much as Jesus did for me, so I have some growing to do. Maybe you do too. And maybe that's something we can pray for together. And listen, if, you're, if you are searching for Jesus, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe it's a big deal that you're even here or you're watching online right now. And you're just still trying to kind of kick over rocks and figure out this whole Christianity thing. You need to know that loneliness is not a Christian problem. If you are lonely, you just need to know it's a symptom of creation's brokenness. Our creation... Man, woman, child, plant, tree, it all groans and yearns to be renewed. If you're not lonely, I'm glad for you, but you also know what I know. And that's how fragile a friendship can be. It is one car accident away. It is one person being relocated because of work away. It happens. Loneliness is close to all of us. I think it is still a pandemic. But the good news is there is a friend that is closer than a brother for you, and he joins his reputation with us and vouches for us. It's amazing. He calls us family when we are in our deepest of needs, blind and lonely and hurting and full of shame, and he comes and he puts his hands on our shoulders and he says, brother, sister, friend, that's who he is closer than a brother and he is here for you he is here for you I submit that you just lay your life down and accept that friendship love him adore him back choose to lay your life down give yourself 1000% to this beautiful king who loves us to death and then there's plenty of room for us to celebrate not just repent but and to respond and a place of celebration because, listen, there's going to be a day where friendships will be formed without sin getting in the way. What will that look like? I mean, what friendship do you have that doesn't have sin all up in the middle of it, right? We'll have relationships that have no sin. I don't even know what that looks like. Nothing to clutter up God's community. No neediness or deceit, no demanding requirements. When we are there as friends, we'll have Ananias there. He'll be a good friend to us. We'll see Barnabas there and these folks that lowered Saul in a basket. I got questions for them, right? Like, show me this basket. We'll have Paul there. He'll be a friend. And then we will bask in the glory of the light of the greatest friend who is Jesus Christ. He will be friends with us. His glory will light the cosmos for eternity. And yet he will be a great friend closer than a brother. Until then, we disciple each other, we give our best, we pray for friends, we build friendships, and when lonely, we petition God to do his work in us. We petition him to do his work in us.